Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. Hello and welcome to East Leeds FM. You're listening to Love the Words. Here on Love the Words tonight, we're going to rebroadcast two stories by Jeff Reese, otherwise known as Mo. Jeff wrote some stories for us under the generic title of Voice of Reason. They're kind of treatments for the 21st century of old folk stories. Uh, Jeff sadly died a few weeks ago and we'd like to put these stories out again in honour of him and in memory of him. The first is Sleeping Beauty read by Pam Hilton and the second one is Aladdin read by Owen Shaw. In between those stories we're going to be broadcasting an excerpt from a broadcast we did on Saturday just this last Saturday from Leeds Town Hall. It was the first recital organ recital since lockdown it was a strange occasion there was only myself and the team from East Leeds FM and the Leeds Town Hall technical team plus Darius Batawala Leeds City organist playing the organ and we were soliciting memories of Leeds Town Hall from members of the public and also talking to staff at Leeds Town Hall about how they feel about the situation but also about this wonderful building so first of all Sleeping Beauty by Jeff Rees Sleeping Beauty 2019 The original Sleeping Beauty tale tells how a jealous witch armed with a poisoned needle puts a beautiful princess into a hundred years sleep to be eventually woken by a kiss from a handsome prince. The version collected by the brothers Grimm was derived from a tale published in 1697 as La Belle au Bois Dormant, the beauty sleeping in the woods. What would Sleeping Beauty make of the world today? The Voice of Reason, Part 1 Sleeping Beauty 2019 by Jeff Rees Good afternoon. Is this a Sleeping Beauty Visitor's Centre? A pompous man asks this question, standing in front of a reception desk that bars the way to the narrow, spiral staircase leading to Sleeping Beauty's bedroom, high in a turret of Castle Main. Behind the same desk, a young lady sits wearing the chambermaid's uniform, a simple black dress with white lace collar, apron and belt, all starched as white as teeth, sensible black shoes at one end and a small white cap at the other. She is 23 years old. Not a beauty, but attractive for all that. Her badge says, Mary Higgins, how may I help you? Mary looks up at the man. Well, let's see... There's a big sign over the door saying, Welcome to Sleeping Beauty's Visitor Centre. There's a rack of pencil sharpeners, tea towels and pillowcases, all with Sleeping Beauty's image. And finally, the TV screen behind me shows a beautiful girl fast asleep in bed. Quite a few clues there, really. Mary has been Sleeping Beauty's carer for almost three years. She is the fourteenth in a line of carers stretching back in time. Soon after getting the job, when she was shown the bedroom in the west turret, Mary asked Mrs Turnbull, the head of the household, what am I supposed to do up here? Dust, my dear, dust, said Mrs Turnbull, pointing to an ancient feather duster hanging from a hook. You probably know how Sleeping Beauty was put into a long sleep by a wicked witch whose poison needle pierced the girl's finger almost hundred years ago. She doesn't age and she doesn't, shall we say, deteriorate. She has uh, <coughs> no bodily functions, but she does get so awfully dusty. 
And the cobwebs, oh my, she's like a magnet for spiders. Maybe the static electricity, something to do with the magic spell. Your job is to visit every day, gently dust her down, clean away the cobwebs and make sure the room's clean. Oh, and don't forget to sign the roster before you leave. You might also touch up her makeup, my dear. We want her to look her best. Mary soon discovered the other part of her job was to vet visitors. Some powerful foreign royals arrived at Castlemaine, hoping they would be the one to end the beauty's long sleep and live happily ever after with her. Today's visitor, Duke Box, is one such royal hopeful. He is a man of great stature. His head is held high, his chest covered in gold, and his belly protrudes over the embroidered flared trousers that hide his elevated shoes. I've come to wake her up. Fat chance, fat belly, thinks Mary silently. Jukebox, is it? Give us a tune then, she teases. <laughs> Very funny. Have you any idea how many times I've been asked that? Anyway, I'm here to wake Sleeping Beauty by kissing her on the lips. Oh, no, you're not, says Mary. We only let Princess try that. But you can take a look at her upstairs for a small administrative fee. And you can take a selfie of yourself with her. It's really quite reasonably priced. We also offer a range of postcards, mugs and tea towels and other stuff, all at very fair prices. The pillowcases are especially popular. The next visitor to arrive is Count Down. I'll wake her up, you'll see. Here we go again, thinks Mary. Count Down, indeed. She pauses, silently counting. Three, two, one, before launching into her spiel. I'm sorry, we only let Princess try to wake her. You can take a look at her if you like for a small administrative fee. But I'm a royal, he bellows. Look, my blood is blue. I come from a long line of people wearing ermine and gold and occasionally murdering each other. Of course I can wake her up. I don't care what colour your blood is. You can't touch her. The spell was quite specific. It has to be a prince, states Mary firmly. We get kings, dukes, earls, marquises, barons, counts, lords and royals of all kinds from all over the world. One of the first visitors was Earl Lee. We've had barren ground and you just missed Duke Box. We had a dictator last summer and a few princesses who fancy their chances, plus the odd queen. But only princes are allowed to have any physical contact with Sleeping Beauty. It's health and safety, you know, more than my job's worth. Mary has been building a tidy nest egg from allowing visitors a sneaky peek inside the beauty's bedroom to take a selfie. She also sold occasional Sleeping Beauty screensavers. She planned to retire as soon as Sleeping Beauty woke up, if and when that happened. Mary's main job involved delicate use of the ancient feather duster. Every day she traipsed up the stairs and lightly whisked the duster about a bit before signing her name on the roster and making her way back down to the guest entrance. The duster was very unlikely to wear out from overuse in Mary's hands. She worked with a little more enthusiasm on Tuesdays before Mrs Turnbull's weekly inspection, but the duster spent most of its time just hanging about. In truth, Mary spent most of her time upstairs sitting in the bedroom, texting and chatting with her pals on FaceTime, telling them she hates her job and needs a change because she's bored witless. After all, her patient was hardly likely to complain. One day, six huge lorries rumbled carefully down the bumpy lane through the forest in front of the castles. Where the hell are we? asks George, the driver of the first lorry. We're sitting in the cab of an articulated lorry on a narrow road somewhere in Dorset, answers his mate, Barry. You should be a management, Barry. You answer my question perfectly, but providing me with no useful information at all. 
That wasn't a perfect answer, says Mike, the other passenger. I'd say we're sitting in the cab of an articulated lorry on a narrow road somewhere in Dorset, and I am desperate for a pee. George stops in the narrow lane, and five more trucks stop behind him. Seventeen men, all wearing black T-shirts with the word crew on their backs, jump down from the six lorries, and sixteen unlucky trees get a good soaking. One tree is shared by two men. Hey, watch what you're doing, one grumbles. Barry stays in one lorry, battling gallantly with his mobile phone and sat-nav system, but eventually he jumps down and walks over to where George is zipping his flies. I figured out where we are. You should drive onto a sharp right bend and turn down a narrowish path just to the left there. The castle is just through these woods. Young man, says George, if you are right, you'll go far in show business in the years to come. If you're wrong, you'll go even further and much, much sooner. The trucks, once repopulated, continue slowly following Barry's directions until they arrive in front of Castle Main's imposing battlements. That's an imposing face aid, says Barry. You'll need a face aid if you don't shut up. It's a facade, not a face aid, you ignorant apology for a man, says George. Come on, let's get down to work. Three days later, segments of a stage have been unloaded and erected, and what a stage it is! It bristles with lights, microphones and black boxes with lots of knobs. Cables of all colours snake across the platform. On the roof there are more lights, flamethrowers and hidden fireworks. There are two drum sets, numerous guitars, a mandolin, trumpets and horns, all in place. On both sides of the stage, 40 megawatts of speakers make a reasonable impression of the White Cliffs of Dover in black. The large lawn is now surrounded by a tall hoarding, designed to make sure only people who pay for their tickets see the concert, even though anyone within a ten-mile radius will be able to hear it for free. Mary watches the event being set up in front of the castle through the window. Watching distracts her from boredom and provides a little excitement. Even the occasional dusting is forgotten. She has the best view from the bedroom window high up in the turret. Come Saturday evening, concert fans begin to gather. They stand and sit on the grass in front of the stage. Bouncers walk around, looking menacing, with bored, world-weary looks on their faces. The crew run around, frantic to complete last-minute jobs. Everyone looks up as a helicopter lowers itself from the sky to land on the castle's immaculate lawn. Cheers and screams rise as the band steps out and runs across the lawn, waving as they disappear into their backstage dressing rooms. At around 7.30, only half an hour late, a warm-up man bounces onto the stage to introduce the support band, they play a few numbers, putting everyone in the mood to sing along. And then, at last, the main attraction appears on stage to wild cheers and a tsunami of thrown underwear. They play their opening number before cranking up the feeling and the volume in equal parts. Up in the turret bedroom, Mary hangs out of the wide-open window, her face alight with excitement and the reflected glow of the set. The noise is physical. It hits the castle like a hurricane, flies in through the open window to fill Sleeping Beauty's normally quiet bedroom. It penetrates every fibre, pore and orifice of Mary's being. Even the feather duster shakes in fear of the vibrations from outside. Mary is so completely engrossed that she doesn't notice Sleeping Beauty's eyes flutter a few times and open. While Mary stares down at the stage through the open window, Sleeping Beauty slowly sits up and swings her legs over the side of the bed. Mary, what 
the hell's that? says the no longer sleeping beauty. Mary spins round in amazement. What did you say? What the? You were awake. How do you feel? And how do you know my name? The no longer sleeping beauty looks Mary straight in the eye. Which question shall I answer first? I said, what the hell is all that noise? I've never heard anything like it before. Mary begins to explain about amplifiers, microphones, electric guitars, but quickly gives up on her impromptu lesson. It's the artist previously known as Prince. He must be the one to come and wake you. And how do you know my name? The witch that poisoned me with a sharp needle was very wicked, more wicked than a politician. She made sure that while I slept, I would hear everything going on around me, even though I couldn't even blink an eye. I have heard every conversation in this room. Can you imagine how frustrating, as well as revealing, that has been? No longer sleeping, Beauty walks gingerly to the window, and Mary steps respectfully aside, unable to resist staring at the princess. Despite being both old and young, she is very beautiful. Mary can't help wondering how much a tabloid would pay for a photograph of this moment. I've lost track of time. How long have I slept? Beauty asks. Well, according to this chart, you've slept nearly 95 years. What year is this then? Come and look at the records. This is 2019. Every sheet here represents a year. I'm the 14th person to look after you whilst you've slept. I've kept you clean and swept away any intrusive spiders. Well, thank you very much. But I did hear what you said to your friends about how boring it has been for you, caring for me. And what is a selfie? I heard lots of talk about selfies, but I don't know what they are. Mary starts to feel a little guilty. A selfie's a little bit like a portrait. Oh. Beauty looks down at the scene below. Which is the prince? And what are they doing down there? Oh, there isn't a real prince. There's a famous singer called Prince. Well, it was Prince, but no, it's just a squiggle. And actually, it isn't really him. He died a few years ago. This is what they call a tribute band. They're playing and singing Prince's songs. The one pretending to be Prince is that one in the sparkly, tight-fitting suit. And we call this a concert. People play instruments and sing songs for others to enjoy. The beauty looks at the scene for a few more moments. Oh, troubadours, I get it. But he's no prince, that squirming idiot. He's far too small. I was sent to sleep by a little prick and I don't want to wake up for another. Squiggle. <laughs> I'm going back to bed. And so she does. She's soon back on her bed in exactly the same position as before, her lustrous black hair spread across the pillows, just as it has been over the last 95 years. Unsurprisingly, Mary wonders if the whole thing was a dream, but decides she couldn't possibly have dreamt Sleeping Beauty's contemptuous <laughs> nor the idea that Sleeping Beauty knew how little caring she'd actually been doing. From that day forward, Mary takes much better care of her sleeping ward. She is caring, respectful and gentle as she dusts the once again sleeping beauty. She keeps the room immaculate and touches up sleeping beauty's makeup regularly. Mary talks to and sings to sleeping beauty while she works and no more visitors are permitted to pay for sneaky selfies. Pillowcase sales, however, continue to do well. Mary told no one what happened on the night of the concert, not even her friends or Mrs Turnbull. Slowly she is learning to live with her feelings of guilt and is resolved to continue caring for Sleeping Beauty for the remaining years. Mary waits for the century-long sleep to eventually end. She keeps an expensive camera by her side, charged and at the ready. Sleeping Beauty continues to sleep on her bed 
and Mary, her duster and the camera, continue to wait, full of delicious anticipation. Love the haiku, love the sonnet, love the quatrain and the couplet, love the words, from East Leeds FM. Obviously, you've been in the town hall since on occasion. Does it still mean a lot to you, the town hall? Yes, absolutely. Um, it, it's still got that wonderful... I don't know, it's so grand, isn't it? It's, and and it's, um, it says something about the city. It says something about the arts, you know, and how the arts can be a very wonderful experience and, uh, you know, a life-enhancing experience, really. wonderful memories of the town hall. We got married there on the 6th of January 2001 in the main hall. Um, the reason that we got married in the town hall is a bit of a strange story because we didn't originally intend to. We were supposed to be getting married in the summer of 2001 but uh, our daughter was really poorly. She had a genetic condition and we knew that she wasn't going to live for very long. So we brought our wedding forward hoping that she'd make it um, but unfortunately she didn't and she died um, on the 14th of December a few weeks before so all of our family had to come up for the funeral and um, spent some time with us and then they came back up on the 6th of January but that didn't make it a sad occasion it was a very beautiful and very poignant ceremony and we had a fantastic party afterwards where the love in the room was was quite evident so we got married on the stage we had about 100 people and they sat on the choir risers and um, we decided that because we weren't getting married in a church that we would face our audience and um, the registrar had their back to them. So we stood there, it was like being in some kind of strange play where we, we, we looked at everybody and we could see the smiles and the love from everybody. One of, the, one of our friends who did a reading was wearing a high collared white shirt and uh, both of our grandparents thought that she was he was um, a vicar so that made them very happy so they were pleased with that 
And afterwards we stood outside and the twinkling lights were still on because it was it was Christmas time. And I looked up and Seren, which is my daughter's name, um, means star in Welsh. So the twinkling lights kind of made me feel like she was there as well. And every time I walk past the town hall now, particularly sort of through December and January when the lights are still on, I just have wonderful memories of the place. So the Holocaust Memorial Service is held in the town hall every year. And um, it's not just for Holocaust, uh, to remember Holocaust victims, but also genocides that took place in Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia and Darfur. And uh, you'd think that um, it would be a bit impersonal to hold it in the town hall. But in fact, in that big hall, the Victoria Hall, I think it's called, um, with its impressive high ceilings and gilt work and everything. It's it's quite an intimate service. So I used to go with my late aunt every year who came over with the kinder transport. It's not just Jewish people who attend. And this year um, I attended with some Muslim friends um, and there was an exhibition in the side room of the town hall. Um, with all the um, people who came to Leeds on the kinder transport, because Leeds was a big, um, uh, took a lot of children in. So, you know, I mean, of all the things that the town hall is used for, that is one of my memories of it. Town Hall sometime in the early 80s, uh, not long after I moved to Leeds, and uh, I joined a choir in Leeds in 1986, the Leeds Festival Chorus, so I've sung with them in the Town Hall many times over the years, uh, sometimes with the organ, sometimes with an orchestra and the organ. Um, it's, a, it's a lovely instrument, it's a fabulous instrument to listen to and to uh, sing with. Richard, can I ask you, um, I mean, it's obviously a wonderful place uh, as a hall to perform in, I imagine. Yes. Um, but uh, I've been asking other people, apart from the hall itself, Victoria Hall, are there any other spaces within the town hall that you really like? The, the Albert Room uh, is, is rather good. That's uh, near the front of the building and it's a, a large meeting room that sort of goes about two storeys high with a balcony and is used for sort of various formal events and we've occasionally sung in there and um, there's a balcony up at the top uh, you can get a ooh, 20 or 30 people on to sing as a small choir that's quite fun finally richard uh, yeah. can you remember one particular performance with the festival chorus in the town hall well i'll tell you that what really sticks in my mind uh, and it's not just one performance we've done it several times is a piece that was written for uh, the Leeds Festival in the 1930s, which is William Walton's Belshazzar's Feast, which is absolutely fabulous work to uh, perform. And, you know, we feel that it's our piece of music and it's one of those that's gone into the, the repertoire of big choirs across the world, a great success. The story about that is that it, it's for a choir, a very large orchestra with extra brass players who stand up behind the choir. And that the festival that year was that the... Um, was performing Berlioz's Grand Meste More, which requires even more brass players. And Sir Thomas Beecham, who was in charge of the festival and uh, had this little-known composer, William Walton, to, to deal with, said, oh, well, he might as well have extra brass. It'll be there anyway for, for the Berlioz. <laughs> so he can have some extra brass, and it's a fantastic effect. Aladdin, 2019. This very ancient tale may have originated in China before spreading through the Middle East as Allah Adin. It was added to the French version of the Arabian Nights by Antoine Galland in the 18th century, he having heard the story from a Syrian in Aleppo. 
In the tale, Aladdin finds an old oil lamp, rubs it, and is given three wishes by a kindly genie. But what would Aladdin wish for today? The Voice of Reason, Part 2 Aladdin, 2019 by Jeff Rees. Mike Brown and his bullying pals saw Aladdin approaching down the school corridor. Here he comes, Aladdin Green. What a stupid name. Where's your carpet then, Aladdin? Smart boy, are you? Bit of an eye flyer, are you? Where are the other lads in green then? Can you fly? Come on, we can help you fly. It all started on his first day at upper school. After a few days, the bigger boys started nudging him, then pushing him and tripping him up. Aladdin became adept at falling in a soft little heap. And the girls just giggled at him. I wish I had a normal name, he thought. Aladdin's parents ran a very unsuccessful oriental rug shop in Leeds, his gran lived in a small flat above the shop. Grandma's name was Teresa Wood. As a young woman, suitors, bold, stern and proud, came but soon went. She felled them one by one, like a man wielding a double-headed Viking axe. Then one day, Isa Green, the family optician, made her see life in a new light and she became Teresa Green. And that's how the family tradition for odd names stuck. But Grandma Teresa became increasingly confused and spent most of her later years laying in bed, mumbling to herself. Aladdin liked to go and sit with her. He tried to understand her, but her words were hard to catch. Some words were repeated and sounded something like Tahiti, Ayers Rock, Perhaps the moon. Aladdin had always loved his grandmother and her secret smile, the one she saved just for him in his daft name. His parents' rug store was one place he could escape from the taunts and cruel giggles he had to endure at school. The rugs were piled high, and the cushion racks provided cover for a lonely boy playing imaginary adventure games against invisible adversaries, ones that didn't make fun of his name. But on this occasion, the local bully-in-chief, Mike Brown, accompanied by some equally unpleasant friends, had followed Aladdin back from school and into his parents' store. Here, Aladdin! What's all this rubbish, then? I reckon these carpets look silly on those shelves. They should be on the floor, don't you think? And these weird cushions, too. Aladdin looked on, half frightened, half annoyed, and all helpless, as Mike Brown showed off to his friends. Between them, they tore most things from the shelves, making as much of a mess as they could before leaving, just as Aladdin's mum walked through the door. I can't hear you, and I'm not listening to you. She refused to hear Aladdin's excuses. She said he would not be eating another meal at home until he tidied up the store properly. Aladdin started folding and stacking the heavy rugs, but got rather distracted by something hard underneath one of them. It looked something like a small, very old, brass lamp. He rubbed it with the sleeve of his woolly jumper, in accordance with what he thought was an ancient tradition. Promptly, Nothing at all happened. So, he tried rubbing it again, this time more firmly. A great puff of smoke burst from the spout with a low but long whoosh sound as even more smoke emerged. He thought he was about to set fire to the whole collection. Quick as a lead schoolboy can be, he grabbed the fire extinguisher, glanced at the label, hit the button, pulled the trigger and began spraying white foam around the storeroom. He soon realised that he had overreacted, this being a rare case of smoke without fire. He also discovered 
that due to the lack of an off switch, he could not extinguish the extinguisher. So the sticky white foam continued to spew from the black nozzle, and soon the carpets, the cushions, the walls, the floor, and most alarmingly, the genie that had appeared from inside the tiny oil lamp. The genie wore a dark blue boiler suit, now splattered in white foam, a yellow safety helmet, and huge steel-tipped work boots. Several pencils stuck out of one top pocket, and a folding wooden ruler poked out of the other. He was also standing firmly on the floorboards, not floating, as Aladdin assumed he should be. What the? What's that? What's going on here? gasped the genie, wiping foam from his thick black moustache. What's going on? Why are you spurting that white stuff all over me? I'm sorry, said Aladdin. As Aladdin apologised, the extinguisher spluttered out of foam like a tired old firework. The genie wiped his face and sat down. He looked around and said, Well, it's not to me, not really, pal. I've been cooped up in that lamp for ages. It were getting on me wick, so it's time for getting me out. <sighs> right, what year is this, then? 2019. 2109? That's not a year. It's a time of day. Anyway, let me introduce myself. I am the genie of the lamp. You don't speak like a genie. So, an expert on genie diction, are you? What's your name, anyway? I'm Aladdin. Aladdin Green. Oh, <laughs> oh great name you got there, kid. Have you made any parents yet? No, I haven't. You're not dressed like a genie, and you don't sound like one either. So, you're an expert on genie diction and genie fashion, are you, Aladdin Green? These are me working clothes. Granting wishes can be dangerous. Dirty work sometimes. You wouldn't believe the things some people ask for. Aladdin thought for a moment. Anyway, I thought genies floated in the air. Oh, I'm so sorry for standing on the floor like a normal person. If I wear out the floorboards, you can wish them back again. Can you cast spells? Can you really cast spells? You're asking me? The greatest genie in the known world for more than a thousand years, and you ask me if I can cast spells? You can't, can you? No. If I could cast spells, I'd give myself three wishes. Orcus Porcus, give me three wishes. There, didn't work, did it? Aladdin gulped. But you can grant me some wishes. Grant wishes? You ask me, over a thousand year old, and the greatest genie in the known... We've been through that. I bet you could grant wishes if you were dressed like a proper genie, said Aladdin. The genie gave a weary sigh. Oh, I blame that Walt Disney. So can you grant wishes? Please say you can. You can, said the obedient genie. I suppose you'd expect in three for rescuing me. Well, yeah, that would be nice. Well, yes, that would be great, of course. I thought you'd say that. I wish you'd let me start wishing, Aladdin said, before adding hurriedly. Wait, that's not my first wish. The genie took some paper and a pencil out of a pocket in his overalls. You've got to sign this disclaimer first. Aladdin scribbled his name without a glance at the small print. The genie stuffed it away in his pocket. Right. Now then, what's your first wish, young man? You'll take all day, will you? Aladdin thought quickly. Well, the first thing is to clear up this room. It's a right mess, and my mum won't let me have anything to eat until it's tidy again. So, for my first wish, can you make the shop all neat and tidy, please? That's no good, said the genie. It don't work like that. What you got to say is, I wish, da-dee-da. Okay, try again. Oh, I see. Okay. I wish this room was clean and tidy and back how it's supposed to look. Right, you go and stand in the corner over there, face the wall and shut your eyes tight. No peeking now, said the genie. Aladdin did as he was told and waited for a while. Nothing much seemed to happen, apart from a few swishing noises. The genie said, OK, 
You can open your eyes again now and have a look. Aladdin looked around the room. Every carpet was neatly rolled and stacked. All the cushions were displayed in a fairly colour-coordinated way around the shelves. And best of all, the fire extinguisher was back in its bracket with the little dial showing green for full. There was no white foam to be seen. And although the genie's overalls were once again grubby, they were completely foam-free. OK, then, Aladdin. Happy now? Let's keep going. What's wish number two? Don't rush me. I need time to think. Say, I wish I had more time to think, then. No, you can't catch me out like that. The genie raised a bushy eyebrow. Oh, this kid's smart, but mm, then again he'd have to be with a name like that. He may be a little green, but he's not quite as daft as he looks. Mind you, who could be? Go on, then. I'll go to the loo while you think. There's one down that corridor. Don't rush. You take your time, Aladdin said, thinking hard about his next wish. Ten minutes later, a very relieved-looking genie returned. Are you ready now? Come on, chop, chop. Hurry up, I ain't got all day, you know. Yes, I've decided, said Aladdin. Here it is. I wish I had an ordinary name. Oh, yeah. Hmm, well, I can relate to that one. Hang on. Don't go away. As the genie disappeared, Aladdin felt a strange, moving sensation wash over him. A shimmering sense that the world was moving around him, and his clothes were floating in the air a few yards behind him. Then the genie was back, and they were both still fully clothed. That's that, then, the genie said. What's your last wish? Do you mean... I have an ordinary name now. You have a new name. How can I tell? Arise, Aladdin Blue. The genie bowed and flourished his safety helmet. Oh no, that's even worse. How did you come up with the name Aladdin Blue? Oh, you're mad, you. I thought you'd be happy with Aladdin Blue. Well, I'm not. I'm not happy at all. In fact, I'm quite blue. The genie sat down on a pile of neatly stacked rugs. I was only kidding, love. You'll be Alan Green from now on. I even updated your Facebook page. I'm your new Facebook friend, too. One wish left. What's it going to be? Aladdin, or was it Alan Green, felt like a new person so different to his previous self that he found it rather difficult to think of a last wish that would help him with the boys and girls at school. And then he had a better idea. Well, said Alan, my grandma is very ill, and I wonder if my last wish can be for her to feel better again. Can you do something for her with my last wish? The genie would have stopped in his tracks if he'd left any. He took off his yellow safety helmet and held it to his substantial chest. His big face softened as he looked directly at Alan and said, Do you know, I've been in this wishing business for over a thousand years, pal, and you, you are the very first person ever to think about using a precious wish for someone else. I'm really impressed with you, Alan. You're a very special person, you are. I'll do whatever I can to help you, Gran. I can't make her live forever, but I'll see what I can do about her health. Are you ready for this last wish, then? Alan took great care as he chose his words for his final wish. Once more, he got that strange, shifting-without-moving feeling. But this time, the genie said, that's all done now, Alan, my boy. Good luck with everything. I won't be back, but I won't forget you. Then, with a thin wisp of smoke, the genie disappeared back into the lamp, leaving his yellow safety helmet rolling around on the floor. 
Alan stood there thoughtfully, quite prepared to believe that he had been, or indeed still was, dreaming, were it not for the helmet and the tidy shop. After a few moments, his mother ran in, red in the face, eyes wide, hair a mess. She looked quite normal, but she was yelling at the top of her voice, Alan, Alan, come quick! Your grandma's woken up! Wow, this room looks neat. Quick, hurry up, she's asking for you! Alan, he thought. She called me Alan. It was real. Not a dream. Mother and son rushed together up the stairs to find his grandma sitting up in bed, looking well and alert. There you are, Alan. Come and give Grandma a big hug. Ooh, I could kill for a gin and tonic. Grandma enveloped Alan in her thin, long arms, kissing his cheeks over and over. Several hugs and miles of smiles later, after everyone had stopped shaking, laughing and crying, peace and quiet returned to the rug emporium. When Alan's parents went downstairs to make some herbal tea, the newly renamed Alan and his wide-awake Grandma Teresa sat together. Grandma, Alan said, you've been talking in your sleep, going on about Tahiti and Ayers Rock and the moon, I think. How do you know about those places? She smiled and winked. I've been to them and to loads of other places too. And I think you know how I got there, don't you, Balan? Alan grinned back. And I think you know how you got better, don't you, Grandma? They both laughed. Were we ingenious? Alan said. Yes, dear, we were ever so ingenious. And you're right, Alan. I know why I feel so much better so suddenly. You used a wish for me, didn't you? Thank you. You're a very special boy, you are. A very special boy indeed. Thank you, Alan. Thank you very much. When Alan strode into school the next day, he seemed two inches taller. Mike Brown was too busy with his silly friends to bother with him. Later on that day, at lunch, a pretty girl in his class, Anne, walked over and sat next to him. She looked at him and asked if he would help her with her homework. Alan felt sure he could. lunchtime organ concerts every day on a Monday in the town hall, as you say, um, from September to March every year, um, and a similar series of chamber music on a Wednesday down at the College of Music. Um, but just attending those free concerts every week and, and speaking to the to the people that come to those concerts, it, it just shows you how important getting out to a live concert and a shared human experience is to people. Um, we had one gentleman who we were talking to at the end of a concert and he apologised for wittering on. And we said, no, it's fine. You know, we like having a chat with you. And he said, well, that's nice. He says, because if, if I didn't speak to you, I wouldn't speak to anybody else during the week. And that just brought it home, how important it is having these concerts and that they're free and anybody can access them. We, we offered tickets to um, a group of care leavers and 
we had a lovely thank you card after one of the concerts that we had. Um, this young man had come with the group of care leavers and he, he hadn't really wanted to come in because he didn't think it was going to be for him. It was a concert of songs from West End musicals with Up and North. Um, and he was persuaded to come in because he'd got to the town hall steps and he was there, he might as well come in, you know. And the group leader in, in, encouraged him to come in. And he, he, he sat through the first half of the concert and he was absolutely enthralled. Um, and, and he went on to write us this thank you letter to say that he'd actually joined a choir and later on we heard from the group leader that he'd been and sung in a concert in London and that it had absolutely changed his life. Um, and that was just lovely. When I marry Mr. Snow, then it's off to home we'll go. And uh, I mean, it's interesting with the town hall because we often think of it as the, the heartbeat of the city in many ways. And you know the the re reawakening of the town hall is almost emblematic of the re reawakening of the city after lockdown. And I've just been amazed and humbled by the generosity of the members of the public, who, when we've offered to refund tickets for book bookings that they had in the future and after Christmas, have said no. We want to make a contribution to the town hall or to its refurbishment scheme. Uh, which has been absolutely tremendous because it's not just about concerts. You know, we have weddings there, citizenship ceremonies, graduations, uh, you know, internationally renowned artists that you've alluded to, choirs, orchestras. Uh, and it's 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 sort of, sort of fitting that, uh, you know, we start, if we can get going in the new year, we'll have, of course, all the big orchestras back. We, we had a planned concert with the Estonian National Symphony Orchestra in January. Uh, they're based in Tallinn. They first performed in 1926. Uh, that'll be fantastic. Then we've got the Armenian State Symphony Orchestra, uh, the 150th anniversary of the Leeds Philharmonic Chorus, the longest standing chorus in Yorkshire. Just a ton of activity already and waiting to kick off just as soon as we can get going. Of course, the challenge is we need to open in a way where we can get as many people in as possible because all of those events are, of course, have an, an economic requirement. You know, we can't just open a concert that's costing tens of thousands of pounds to 100 people. We want to be able to open the town hall properly so we can make it work. That's the challenge, I guess, going forward. Um, Matthew, before we leave you, um, the town hall, what does it mean to you? I mean, I know you've worked there for years, but personally? Well, I, I think it was that's, that feeling for me is best summed up in a... We did an arts an, an arts uh, 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 project a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and we sent out hundreds and hundreds of little A5 uh, cards and we had a line drawing of the town hall on one side and we, we suggested that people might want to colour it in and just write a little thing about what the town hall meant for them and we got one back which which has always stuck with me which was from a, a, a serviceman who'd been fighting abroad in Afghanistan at the time and he just wrote on it saying when I see Leeds Town Hall I know I'm home. Love the control, love the command, love the spacebar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. You've been listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. We've been rebroadcasting two stories by Jeff Rees, known as Mo, uh, in memory of, of Jeff. He sadly died a few weeks ago, and uh, we shall miss him at Chapel FM Arts Centre. We have also been hearing some extracts from the broadcast we did on Saturday from Leeds Town Hall. Uh, the organ recital by Darius Batuwala. You can hear the entirety of that concert and that two-hour broadcast if you go to our website and look 
for Yorkshire Day. Finally, on Love the Words tonight, a story by Pam Line. The morning was a bleak affair. Windscreen wipers swinging like a metronome in an attempt to clear the rain. I turned on the main road to Bradford, arrived at Greengates. There was a blue 4x4 hugging my bumper. It had been behind me since I left Eden. I was heading for my writer's class in the lodge at Undercliff Cemetery. I drove on, indicated right into the car park. I had ten minutes to spare before the class started. I was sure the fall before had braked as I turned. Dismissing the thought as fanciful, I let the dog out and followed her down the two-medged track. Auntie Anne! Auntie Anne! the voice called. I turned to see a man running towards me. Auntie Anne, I haven't seen you for years. I see your brother occasionally. I'm not Anne, and you've been behind me since I left home, I said in a schoolmarmish way. Yes, I followed you from Eden when you turned into the cemetery. I was sure it was you because we have an uncle buried here and I thought you'd come to see him. The rain had stopped. A weak sun turned the dripping raindrops to sparkles, plopping to the ground. He walked closer. Very close. The dog looked up quizzically. Anne, remember when we were young? I reached up, put a finger on his lips. I took his hand and led him under a yew tree. When he gets home tonight, he will tell me everything about the woman he'd met in the cemetery. The stranger who denied being his aunt. How he'd shagged her under the yew tree. How bad he had been. How badly he needed spanking. She heard the sound of a door closing. One morning, one morning, one morning in Like mine has done 